I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Paige Gardner, the founder and president of the Voter Participation Center. The Voter Participation Center has helped over 4.6 million voters register and get to the polls. And Paige Gardner was a pioneer in identifying a key voting bloc. She was one of the first to recognize unmarried women as a key political population, one with significant and impactful political power. Paige Gardner and I discuss what's called the marriage gap. Now that's the gap between unmarried women and married women in relation to their registration habits and voting behaviors. We also discuss this in the context of the coronavirus outbreak, given that unmarried women generally have less financial stability when compared to married women. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Paige Gardner. Paige Gardner, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. Great to be here. So I was looking at your numbers, and since 2003, Voter Participation Center, you've helped around 4.5 million voters register to vote and get to the polls, which is a massive amount of people, millions and millions of people, and that's that's really incredibly impressive. But I'm just curious, you know, 2003, it feels like a lifetime ago, right? I, I know it wasn't, but it feels like a lifetime ago. And I don't think that voter suppression or voter issues were mainstream then. What encouraged you to get into this cause, to become interested in, you know, registering voters? So it's interesting that you bring that up. We have helped over 4.6 million people apply to be registered to vote and hundreds of millions of people turn out. But just sort of tripping down memory lane, in 2000, I looked at the election of Gore versus Bush and noticed the difference between married and unmarried women in terms of how they voted and their share of the electorate. And unmarried women and married women voted very, very differently with unmarried women voting for Gore and married women voting for Bush. And I wondered about that. And the share of the electorate of unmarried women was really, really small in terms of their strength in numbers, in terms of the voting eligible population. So that led to lots and lots of research. And the key question was, was this sort of a, just an observation or was there causality in marital status? In other words, does marital status determine whether or not you register and whether or not you vote? And after years of research and looking at things like articles from Census Bureau, you know, scholars to doing our own research, it turns out that marital status along with age and race, are key determinants of whether or not you register and whether or not you vote. So then the question became, if unmarried women are unregistered in higher numbers than they should be, how do you reach them? So then what we did at the Voter Participation Center was pioneer male-based voter registration targeting a particular demographic all across the country. And that was really... Uh, revolutionary. We created for the first time the first list of unregistered people in this country because, as you know, no state keeps a list of its unregistered citizens. So we had to create a list of unregistered unmarried women, mail them a voter registration application, and then make sure that voter registration application got sent to the appropriate elections official. We did that after a number of years, and then it turned out that this process was successful with other underrepresented demographics, 
persons of color and young people. So that is how our programs evolved to include what we call the Rising American Electorate, which is unmarried women, persons of color, and young people who are now 64% of the entire voting eligible population in the country today, more than 150 million people. Yet they're underrepresented in terms of their registration rates and they do not vote and they are not, you know, as large a share in the electorate as their numbers would suggest that they could be. Wow, that's incredible. I actually had no idea that before voter participation that there was no way or no one was tracking unregistered voters. And now I'm curious, how did you do that? How did you track down who was not registered? Well, after many, many years and what we have done is refined a system where we match a voter file from a state to a list of commercial data, and then we delete the names of people or addresses that do not appear on the voter file. And then we go through about 25 other steps to ensure the quality of the data. And then after having done that, we then mail out a voter registration application form that then the person fills out and sends back to the appropriate election official. Wow. You know, and I actually, I do remember that election and it was very stressful. And, you know, I remember, you know, back then being kind of worried about, you know, the state of elections, you know, after the whole hanging chads thing and, you know, what happened in Florida. But I'm curious as to what your initial findings were about unmarried women, because again, back then I was not married. I was single and, you know, just kind of starting out in my career, but, you know, I'm married now. And I tried to think back of, about, you know, what was my concern? I was voting, but I had different interests. So, you know, when I was single, I still cared about reproductive justice and reproductive health, for instance, but I cared about it from a different perspective. And, you know, now I have a family, I'm married, I still care about reproductive justice, but I care about it from, you know, having a, you know, a functioning reproductive justice system for my daughter, for instance. You know, so it's it's different. So what were some of the things that you found were the differences between what drove unmarried women versus married women? So there there are. It's very, very interesting because there are um, a number of factors. One, unmarried women are less rooted in their communities. They're much more mobile, and they um, so they move more frequently. And your ability to vote is tied to a, you know a residential address, and so if you move, oftentimes you have to re-register to be able to vote. So that's one thing. So, and. Um, you know, unmarried women are a lot more stressed and stretched economically. They represent, in terms of a proportion, higher levels of unemployment, particularly now, higher levels of poverty, and they don't have sort of the support systems that, you know, married couples have. And so unmarried women, they are economically stretched. They make, you know, less than married women in terms of sent you know, to the dollar compared to a married man or compared to a man in terms of the, you know, the pay equity scale. They have less access to health care. There's more food insecurity. They're more mobile. But that's about their lives. There are other things that are keeping unmarried women and other marginalized communities from voting, and it's structural. In terms of the way we have designed the election administration system in this country, it's difficult. Think about the registration process. I mean, you have to register, 
you have to have residency requirements. You have to have a you know ID or proof of you know resident. If you move, you oftentimes you have to re-register. Elections are held on a Tuesday when you may have to you know be at work, and if you take time off from work, you may not get paid for that time off. There's a typical story that I tell a lot. After each election, we usually do focus groups among people who did not get a chance to vote. And there was this one heartbreaking story that I will never forget, which there was a woman, a single mom, in the focus group talking about standing in a line that was going hours and hours and hours. And she had her child in daycare. And as you know, if you're late to pick up your child, you get penalized financially every 15 minutes. And so this is what she said in the group. She could hear it, you know, cha-chink, cha-chink. And, you know, she was a minimum wage worker, a service worker, and she could not, literally could not afford to stand in line to vote because of the structure of the way we handle voting in this country. And so she made the choice of picking up her child from daycare. And at some point, you just have to do it. So in any event, so that was a story of a failing of our democracy for this woman who wanted to vote and yet had to choose between her right to vote and being a mother. And that's wrong. Right. You know, and and I think that's why it bothers me when I hear people disparage any group, any voting block for not being energized, for instance, right? Because I think that we have a tendency to look at groups who vote in smaller numbers as, you know, not being motivated, right? And that's not really what's happening. I mean, I think if we made it easier for people like this woman that you just described to vote and, you know, to have childcare and all of those other things that work in a democracy, I think that we would see, you know, higher turnout. That's right. The system needs to open up. And particularly now in a pandemic situation where you have people literally getting sick and dying because they wanted to vote, as we saw in Wisconsin. So there needs to be a recognition that people have the right to vote. People have the right to vote in a healthy and safe way and in the manner in which they choose. So the increase in vote by mail, access to vote by mail, no excuse vote by mail, critically important. Not requiring signatures, not requiring witnesses on vote by mail in an era of social distancing. Having increased early voting, very, very important with social distancing, increasing the number of polling locations so that, again, you can have people vote on election day with social distancing. So accessing the right to vote needs to happen in a lot of ways. And we need to make sure that their resources are there in the states so that we allow every citizen who wants to vote, we afford them the opportunity to vote. And right now what's going on is some members of Congress are trying to starve the election administration system to suppress voting. Right. I had two questions for you. What do you think is behind the resistance to moving to vote by mail? And just secondly, this is probably less of a question than a comment. You're absolutely right about the signature, because even in my state and in Washington state, we've had vote by mail for a while and there's still a signature requirement, which is I don't really understand the purpose of that because it leaves it open to interpretation. You know, ballots are thrown out because they think that signatures don't match. So what's behind that? So so there are two issues. One is, 
it, for example, in the state I'm in, in North Carolina, you have to have two witnesses to watch you sign, you know, and watch you having signed the ballot before you mail it in, or a notary. Getting two witnesses in an era of social distancing and in a pandemic is pretty much not so much. Um, if you <laughs> so, that's not going to happen. So that requirement needs to be just gone away. Uh, it, it's it's a, it's a silly requirement um, because you know you can trace whether or not an individual has voted, and people are given particular codes. And so you know, voting by mail is one of the safest, as you know, ways to vote in the country. So that's silly. So the other issue, though, that you raise, which is an important issue, is signature matching. And we need to do a lot better job. And again, we need to resource election administrators and their staffs to hire signature experts. I mean, I don't know about you, but my signature has certainly changed since the first time I registered to vote and the first time I voted. And I won't tell you how many years ago, (laughs) but it was a while. And my signature has changed pretty dramatically. And young people now, I mean, if you think about using a credit card and all you have to do is, you know, wave your hand up and down and sign, you know, the magic little thing and, you know, you're good to go. So the accuracy of people's signature, it's not that they're not using their signature, it's that their signatures are changing. And we need to have signature experts, if you're going to do signature matching, to understand that change. And if there's an issue, allow the voter time to then come back and either correct the misinterpretation or demonstrate that their signature is their signature with proof. So that's a whole other issue. And all of this is designed in some ways. Yes, people want voting to be accurate, and that's very, very important. But some of these measures increase the inaccuracy of voting and increase the denial of the right to vote because uh, you have people who don't really know too much about signature matching. You only have one person doing it as opposed to a few people doing it. There's no appeals mechanism in some, in many cases. So it's a system that really needs to be addressed. And I think people are beginning to understand this and states are beginning, responsible states are beginning to address some of the issues that are built into uh, challenges with vote by mail. But there are challenges with any system. As you know, there are challenges with the accuracy of you know, uh, any system, but they are so small. I mean, it's such a small, small, small percentage of people and a small percentage of the problem that vote by mail is overwhelmingly one of the most successful ways people have used to exercise their right to vote. And they want to use it now. I mean, we just did some research. Uh, We've done a number of, you know, research projects. Democrats, independents, Republicans, all want to vote by mail, all want the opportunity to vote by mail. So we need to recognize what the citizens of this country want and give them the opportunity to vote as they wish. How much of that do you think, you know, the messaging that's out there, how much of that do you think is, you know, making people believe or sending out the messaging that, it's problematic for voter fraud, which there's no evidence to support that. I mean, do you think that that misinformation is part of the reason there isn't even greater support for vote by mail? Uh, there's a, that's a false narrative. And there, 
they, that false narrative is sort of, you know, going against the overwhelming majority opinion of wanting to vote by nail. And so that false narrative comes out of fear, as we have seen. As the president said, if, you know, the more people who vote and the more people who, you know, access voting by mail, basically the more people who vote, you know, it would hurt his partisan interest. And so that's a very sad statement that you are so afraid of voters that you would begin a false narrative and try to deny the right to vote to people who want to vote in a healthy and safe way. It's a sad statement, but it, it really lays bare the uh, fear that you know, some, you know, some in the Republican Party have of voters. All right. I think he said the quiet part out loud in that case. Yes. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I mean, if you look at what's happening now with the pandemic in terms of the rising American electorate, and particularly women, you know, in the last great recession. That was a recession that really disproportionately impacted men and the manufacturing sector and the construction sector. What's happening now is just the opposite. This pandemic is disproportionately impacting women. And so you see high unemployment rates, higher unemployment rates around women. You see, and and obviously they make less than men. And so you couple higher unemployment among women with less of a base in terms of a pay scale. And you have a devastation among women in this country, an economic devastation among women, particularly unmarried women who earn less than their married counterparts. And these are the women that are on the front lines in terms of service workers, healthcare workers, you know, helping you get your groceries, helping you pick up your drugs at a pharmacy. So women are on the front line of this pandemic, and they are on the front line in terms of the economic consequences. And so that is a story that needs to be told over and over and over again. And if you think about single moms and the majority of children in this country who are brought up by one parent, they're brought up by single moms. Think of the devastation, not only to the women, but think of the devastation right now for their children. And we as a country have got to come together and recognize that and really not lose two and three generations to this pandemic. And we really need to step up and make sure we think about how to create an infrastructure of support for women, married or unmarried, across the country. 
And that's a big piece of what the Congress and the states need to grapple with and address. Yeah. I mean, when you think it through, women are being hit by this pandemic from economically in so many different directions, right? The fact that we are often in caretaker positions, which are considered, you know, essential positions right now, right? Like women are the nurses who are on the front lines. They're also the people who, you know, rely more on childcare, you know, and they do the childcare, you know, so this is going to be, this is going to be a massive hit to women economically long-term. And like you said, it's going to reverberate for, for generations. And also, again, another group that I know that you focus on are people of color. You know, you've seen the numbers come out for people of color and how they're being hit by this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the history of discrimination, both the discrimination in terms of access to health care, in terms of access to affordable housing in good areas, the access to good jobs, it's, again, it's devastating what's happening now to particularly African-Americans and their communities. And this shines a very bright light on an ugly piece of America. And it's something that we want to address. And it's something that this pandemic hopefully will allow us to say, okay, now is the time. We cannot afford to let this kind of discrimination and this kind of opportunity cost to the country in terms of lost wages and lost talent happen because of race. You know, I'm curious, you know, if unmarried women, this this group that you initially started to focus on, if you could get them to vote and they had access to, you know, the ballot at the same rates that married women had, you know, without all of the barriers, what do you think the direction of the country policy-wise would look like? I think that they, you know, if you think about unmarried women and other members of the rising American electorate, they have a certain set of values that they hold very dear. And they believe in the American dream. They believe in people working hard, playing by the rules, and, you know, getting the rewards of working hard and playing by the rules. They believe in opportunity for people all across the spectrum, whether people agree with them or not, or look like them or not, they agree with opportunity. And so, and they want this country to be strong. I think you'd have a different set of elected officials who finally represent the values of the overwhelming majority of this country. I mean, 64% of the voting eligible population. And yet you have a Congress that doesn't look like the population and doesn't legislate like the population. I mean, think about it. Healthcare has been the number one concern for pretty much every single American in this country. They want access to quality healthcare. And if you think about some of the public policies and some of the attempts to undermine the healthcare system that was set up in the last administration at the devastation of most of the people in this country, except for the very wealthy, you know, that's not a you know, that's not the kind of public policies they want to advocate for. They want a healthcare system that takes care of all Americans, not just a few Americans. So for the people who are listening right now and they're you know really concerned about the outcome of the 2020 election and about you know being able to vote in November, well you know what can they do right now to ensure that they do have access? If they're not registered, they need to register right now. Hang, you know, whatever you're doing and you're not registered, get <laughs> online, go register. The second thing is there are many many states as you know 34 states in the district have you no know, excuse vote by mail and there are many states right now where you can ask the state to send you a, a ballot in November. So go ahead, 
apply to get a ballot. I mean, if you live in Florida, if you live in North Carolina, if you, you live anywhere where, in a state that that's you know allowed right now, and there are many many states where that is, then go ahead and ask. You know, apply to vote by mail in the fall. The most important thing is to access information so you know as an individual all the ways in which you will be able to exercise your right to vote. But the most important thing to do is to exercise that right to vote and to exercise it in a way that makes you feel healthy and safe in doing so. If you look at what is going on now and the leadership in this country, the leadership that is willing to sacrifice lives for a political agenda, that needs to be a wake-up call to every single American to say, this cannot be. I mean, we cannot abide a false narrative and a false choice between a strong economy and disposable people. That's a false narrative. And if you believe that's a false narrative, then you should go vote. Wow. (laughs) Well, Paige Gardner, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for all of the work that you've done. I wish you well. And thank you again. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also, leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight.